I am Consciously Curious, a podcast for those that are searching for a career or are cultivating meaning within their own space. We've had anesthesia providers to barbers, dog behaviors to airline pilots, white collar to blue collar, entrepreneurs to passion projects. Life's too short to not produce meaningful work. Join me, Victor Chan, as we deep dive within various industries. I'd love to hear your feedback, so feel free to leave a comment. I hope you find some value within these conversations, but more importantly, I hope it sparks a meaning within your own space. Our next guest is on a mission to increase access to Narcan in Chicago. He witnessed an overdose on the train and unfortunately did not have Narcan on him or near him. As a nurse practitioner, we explore his journey into nursing as well as the current state of the industry. It's experiencing shortages from burnout and the exodus of baby boomer nurses. We explore creating a culture of safety and how a mistake like giving a patient a paralytic instead of a sedative could have happened. We conclude with his initiative to increase awareness of the opioid epidemic as well as increase access to Narcan. If you're interested in following their journey, you can find them on LinkedIn. Please enjoy my conversation with Eric McIntosh. Eric McIntosh, great to have you here. Thank Welcome you. to the show. Thank you so much. Um, to build context uh, to the listeners, like I stumbled upon your name across various uh, articles referencing the initiative uh, to try to put a Narcan vending machine on the CTA or at the specifically the 95th stop on the red line. Mm-hmm. Um, and but you've also been a part of the heroin or opioid task force on the west side as well. Yeah, so the okay. the west side heroin opioid task force. Okay. And yep. wh- who is who who comprises that that task force? So it's a bunch of community members okay. and I'm specifically part of the arm of um, uh, the CTA Narcan uh, task force. So it's kind of a okay. um, uh, uh, side committee arm of of the uh, of that it's initiative. A little more focus for you. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And to build even more context, mm-hmm. uh, in the articles, it stated that you you've had personal experiences on the CTA that led to this initiative. Yeah. Um, can you speak? You share those those perspectives sure. or the experiences? Um, yeah. So you know, I've been. Oh gosh, I moved to Chicago in two thousand and four. Okay. And I have been a lifelong uh, CTA writer, <laughs> and so between you know, I've lived in Lakeview. I've lived in University Village, um, downtown, now in Wicker Park. Um, and so I, you know, the the bus system and, and the train system, you know, that is my mode of transportation. And, um, you know, it's, you know, for me, having a regular job, um, I'm pretty predictable as far as my schedule goes. Mm. And so, um, you know, I show up to the, the same bus stop or CTA station at the same time. How, how, many, how many ghost buses have you come across? <laughs> oh, let's not talk about the ghost buses. Never train, very rarely train, but yeah, ghost yeah. buses, ghost buses are, are an issue. Um, uh, yeah, podcast for another day, I think with that one. Um, so, um, and, and it's interesting because, you know, you get to know people and so, you know, people keep a fairly regular schedule like I do. Mm. And, and so you really start to see familiar faces and, and it's, 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 it's kind of a weird community because you recognize each other. Like but you acknowledge each other, right? hundred okay. percent. Yeah. And so, and then, and then you'll find yourself sometimes thinking like, 
oh, where's, you know. Like where? if, if you saw them running for the bus, you'd actually like speak oh. up and be like, wait, oh, wait, wait, wait. There's he's someone. coming, yeah. he's coming. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And then like if they're not there, I'm like, wait a minute, it's Tuesday. Why aren't they here? Oh, no. Like, are they like running late? Are they off today? You know, it's just kind of, you know, you, these stories that you create in yeah. your head about these people that you know. Um, and so, and so really, you know, I've, I've they have really become an extension mm. of my neighbors mm. and my coworkers and my family, you know, because mm-hmm. these are the people that I see every day. Um, and so this is one particular night. Um, I was, so, um, like I said, I take the mix up between either the, the train or the bus. I got a ghost bus. Mm. Speaking of ghost buses. So I was like, all right, the blue line's coming. I'm just going to run down. Instead okay. of grabbing the Damon bus, I grabbed, grabbed the blue line. Okay. And again, the blue line has been a staple for the 20 years that I've lived here. Um, and so I got on and, um, there was one particular woman that I had recognized mm. uh, for the last number of years. Um, again, I don't know her name. I don't, but I know I've seen her um, different times of the day um, on the blue line. Um, but anyways, I sat down. This was the end of like a 14 hour shift, exhausted. Like I was just going to mm. play some Candy Crush and just like zone out. Um, and as the train got going and, and we had gone underground, a guy ran up to, so I always ride the first car mm. and a guy had run up to the conductor's door and started pounding on the door saying like, a woman's unresponsive, a woman's unresponsive. Um, and so, you know, my, my nursing instincts kicked in. Sure. And so I looked back and it was this woman that I recognize oh. or I'm familiar with. And she was slumped over, um, in her seat. Um, and, in nearly like collapsing to the ground. Uh, so I rush over, you know, I start, you know, sternal rubbing her, you know, trying to get her responsive eyes, barely opened. Um, and so, you know, of course there were people like, uh, you know, gathering around, seeing what she needed. Uh, some guy gave me a candy bar. He's like, she's probably a diabetic. Mm, Like, I'm like, mm. She's not even like opening her eyes. She's not going to open her mouth to like you know me to shove this you know Snickers bar yeah. down. Um, but I knew and it, I knew she wasn't a diabetic. What is it about so. milk? I hear that often. Like, they need milk. Oh well. So actually, interestingly, uh, so milk has uh, some sugar and protein in it that actually lasts longer than like a juice oh, would, like casein. Or? And so yeah, okay. uh, yeah, or, or something other. Yeah, so. that's that's one of the proteins. Okay. But um, but yeah, so there's actually yeah that milk actually but more for diabetes then or more for nar- more for like opioids no not at all okay oh milk opioids no, no yeah oh, not okay. at all no <laughs> just it's someone that, do I, guess, I guess they're not making the association they just see someone maybe maybe they're associating with hypoglycemia yes okay exactly okay. exactly yeah that's where the milk piece comes gotcha, in gotcha. um so um so i you know i looked her over and i noticed she had track marks mm. in her her um um in her hands. And, and for those that mm-hmm. are un- unaware, like what would track marks look like? Yeah, that's a great question. So they're like, um, Oh, how do I explain it? So they're, they're like tiny little marks or holes that you'll see usually along people's veins. Okay. And sometimes they can be red scarred. Um, you'll typically see them on the forearms. Um, you know, um, um, people who have uh, a drug addiction, mm. um, 
uh, will find various places where they can find veins. And yeah. so that's typically the arms. Um, and so you'll see like, and it's kind of like a line mm. of different places that people have gone in to, to inject. Because over time it's scar tissue and it's yep. harder to inject. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Yep. Because gotcha. they use and overuse that same spot gotcha. um, until it doesn't work anymore. Okay. Until it gets so scarred that they have to move on. Um, and so I saw that in her, in her hands. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm, um, I'm a nurse practitioner in hospital medicine mm-hmm. and, um, part of the patient population that I treat are those with, um, uh, drug addiction. Mm. And so, so this was very familiar to me and, uh, kind of her, um, you know, the slowed breathing, um, the, the nodding, um, of her head, um, I looked into her eyes, mm. they were pinpoint. And Which so means this like is, very constricted, yeah, right? Yeah, very constricted, mm-hmm. very small. So these are all signs of, of uh, an opioid overdose. Mm. So I knew this was um, most likely an, an opioid overdose. Um, and so, um, you know, speaking of antidotes, mm. uh, milk is not one of them, but Narcan is. Mm-hmm. And so um, Narcan is um, a, an, an opioid blocker, essentially, mm. um, that um, you can either give it through the muscle um, or through the nose, through a spray. Mm. And um, when it is um, given to a person who has opioids in their system, mm-hmm. Narcan essentially kicks that um, opioid, opioid off the receptor, and yeah. the receptor, and then binds to it, and so it starts blocking. Does, the does it have a greater effects. affinity for that receptor? It does. Like a, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so it's able to um, compete with the opioid and um, block those receptors. And and what is because on the pre-hospital side, our mm-hmm. goal with Narcan is to restore mm-hmm. adequate ventilations or breathing, yep. rather than wake someone up. Yeah. Well, yeah, and actually, that's essentially what um, Narcan will do, mm-hmm. and so. So what happens is with opioids, when they bind to, to the receptors in your cells, um, it affects your central nervous system. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the biggest effect that opioids do is give a, a feeling of relaxation, sometimes euphoria, and takes away pain. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's an intended effect um, if you are in pain. Mm-hmm. Um, However, one of the, the the side effects and the danger side effects is it can su- uh, suppress uh, your your central nervous system, and so that means when it suppresses it, loss of consciousness, decrease in breathing, mm-hmm. um, and then slowing of the heart rate, um, and so uh, which could eventually um, lead to death. Um, and so, if someone has too much opioids in their system, um, or the body is not used to it. Um, that can be an unattended consequence. And we would say would be an overdose. Um, And so the Narcan... Narcan was recently... Uh, approved for over the counter. I, I it think was. the four milligram nasal spray. Yeah, 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 which is exciting. You know, before um, it was prescription, and then it was um, what we call back of the counter, and so it was um, a, a medication that was. Um, behind the pharmacist. Mm. And so you would have to go up to the pharmacist and ask, you know, if they had Narcan available for purchase. Mm. Um, and not a lot of people know that. No. And so, um, um, and there can be barriers too for pharmacy pharmacies to actually get behind the counter Narcan. Mm. Um, there are certain state laws oh. uh, that can really regulate. Um, Which is weird because there aren't too many. Si- uh, what what side effects are there of Narcan? I, I know there's there's a very there, there's like flash pulmonary edema in like very severe cases. Uh-huh. But aside from that, 
Not much, not much at all. It's it's a very safe, and in fact, that's why the FDA just recently approved it to be over the counter. Mm. And so, over the counter meaning that you don't need to have a provider um, regulating and controlling uh, this medication because it, it's safe for public general use. Yeah. Um, you know, if which then comes the education component right, of yeah. administering it. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And you know, basically, you know, if you've ever used you know saline nose spray right. or Flonase, yeah. you're going to know how to use this. Okay. Uh, and it's pretty simple. Um, of just taking it out of the package and then inserting it into the nostril yeah. and pushing the plunger, and then it gets deployed. Um, and you know the the nice thing with it over the counter now is it's out for the general public to see, mm. to purchase, and then if they do have questions, there's the pharmacist there that'll be able to help educate them to to know how to use it. But you know, like all medications that are over the counter, there's instructions, and so mm. you can read the instructions mm. as well. You know, once you bring it home, um, and so you know, I, I yelled out like. Yeah. Anybody have Narcan? No one did. And, uh, you know, I got some strange looks. You know, people haven't heard of it. Um, and so we finally pulled into a station, and they've called EMS, and we're just waiting. And so I, I step out of the train, and I go to the train conductor, and I said, hey, you know, do you have Narcan available? And she go, she said to me, even if we did, we couldn't give it. Which maybe according to CTA policy may be true, um, but actually we have an Illinois state law that protects a person, um, a bystander, giving yeah. Narcan from any sort of uh, legal um, repercussions. And so you can actually give Narcan as you know, um, a non-medical person. Is this specifically person. Narcan or just like Good Samaritan law or something more specific? No, this is actually specific oh, to Narcan. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think it was like in 2010, oh. uh, this law came into effect. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, anybody can give it. Now let's say, you know, that, you know, the, this woman that uh, on the blue line, um, let's say, you know, I'd said, okay, she has an opioid overdose, mm. but maybe it really was diabetes. Mm. Um, but I gave her Narcan instead. Mm-hmm. Nothing's going to happen. Yeah. There's going to be no real side effects for her getting Narcan and not having any opioids. Sure. Um, but if Narcan had been available to me and I gave it to her, what I would see is the automatic reversal um, of of the side effects of mm-hmm. of uh, blocking the the opioids and, and in that the system. nasal spray it says four milligrams, but mm-hmm. is it two pumps or like one pump in each nostril or no? So um, what it actually is, um, so usually in the package it comes in two. Oh, okay. And you deploy it in one nostril first. Now what happens is it depends how much how much opi- opioids are in the person's system. Sometimes just one spray will get them responsive and up and completely reverse what they've taken. For some people, if they have a lot in their system, the effect will only last so long and then they'll go back into mm, the, the respiratory yeah. depression. Oh, wow. And so they may need or likely will need a second administration. Yeah. And so that's when you pull out the second one, put it in the other nostril and deploy it. Interesting. There are some people though that there's so much on board that they will need repeated doses. Oh, I've usually heard in the emergency room. Yeah. Sometimes. Yep. Mm. Yep. And so um um but the 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 biggest thing is is you you want to start reversing it as early as you can until they can get an EMS response there. Mm-hmm. Um and so, you know, unfortunately for this woman, um, 
you know, time just ticked away. Mm-hmm. And it was about 10 minutes from the start of her going, being recognized as being unresponsive to EMS actually getting there. And in that's that actually ten- not bad for Chicago. No, <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's, that's good to know. <laughs> Ideally, a seven, but <laughs> okay, <laughs> I've heard twenty twenty-five. Oh minutes, God, so. wasn't that long? No, yeah, no. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So they got there, and you know, I and I relayed to them. I said, you know, I, I'm pretty sure she's overdosed. She's got track marks in her arms. I'm a nurse. Um, this is my assessment. And then I got right out of the way sure. because they like to get to work. Yeah, you know, yeah. they don't like people around them. Um, but. You know, you know that was ten minutes of decreased oxygen to her brain. Right, opioids taking more effect of her body, slowing her so, response down. What if they took longer? Would you mm-hmm. assess a pulse eventually? Oh yeah, or, and then initiate uh, yeah. CPR. One hundred percent. Yep. And so the entire time that I was with her, waiting for EMS, I had my my finger on her pulse. Um, mm. You know, making sure that you know she was, and still trying to like keep yeah. her aroused and. Um, and responsive, which she really wasn't for wow. me. Um, but had she gotten that Narcan, what I could have expected is her to wake up. You know, if she was taking opioids for pain, she would have been in pain mm-hmm. um, because, you know, that blocks pain receptors and all that. Um, and people are usually very confused and just trying to figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, some people may be upset. With with the dose of four milligrams, or if mm-hmm. you had to give two, would that be eight milligrams then mm-hmm. with, with the second mm-hmm. one? Mm-hmm. Um you know, have you have you seen uh, like agitation, mm-hmm. vomiting, mm-hmm. right? Oh yeah, yeah. Withdrawal symptoms, right? Withdrawal symptoms, yeah, okay. yeah, okay. yeah. And so, yeah, when a person is coming off opioids, um, you know, the, the withdrawal symptoms can be really severe. Yeah. And in fact, you know, people will be hospitalized for two to three days mm-hmm. just to help them recover from from withdrawing. Yeah. Um, and you know, we've got medications out there. Uh, that help with that process uh, for people coming off of of opioids. Um, so there there are two medications right now: buprenorphine mm. um, and methadone. Mm. Uh, so those are the the two uh, medications that we use to to not only help with withdrawals, but then also maintain people in an outpatient setting. Mm. Um, so that instead of taking the heroin or whatever opioid that they're addicted to, um, they take methadone every day, for example, um, to prevent them from relapsing. Sure, sure. Um, at this point, I, I, I'm curious about your personal journey into nursing and healthcare. Oh, yeah. Can you yeah. take us back to like when you had an inkling of like, I want, I want to be some type of healthcare provider? Yeah. Very young age. Oh, wow. Um, so my mother's a nurse. Okay. Uh, retired. Uh, my aunt's a nurse. Retired. Wow. Uh, so it's kind of always in, you know, um, my family. What, what so, kind of nurses were they? So uh, my mother, she did hospital medicine uh, and then retired uh, working in long-term uh, okay. um, acute care at nursing uh, homes, uh, and then my aunt was an OR nurse, Ooh. and so and then she eventually transitioned into like pre-op, pre-operative, okay. Um, okay. Uh, seeing patients before they went into surgery, um, and so which was great, you know, for my aunt because she would bring home all these cool stuff, and mm. so like discarded um, IV tubing, not used, 
um, it just, you know, it had gone on the sterile field and they got contaminated. So sure. instead of throwing it away, she's like, oh, you know, Eric will like this. He'll find it <laughs> fun, you know. And so I got all these really cool different medical stuff. How, how, how old? Oh, I was probably like six or seven. Wow. And so I was introduced. Toys. At a, yeah, it was toys. <laughs> it was toys. Uh, yeah, I was, you know, my friends were interested in G.I. Joe and Star yeah, Wars. Yeah. I was like, no, I got this IV tubing set. <laughs> like... <laughs> Um, and, and then what I would used to do is I would stuff my, I would take a shirt of my, uh, shirt and pants of my dad and stuff them with newspaper. And then I had a, uh, my buddy, I don't know, it was like a toy in the 19, uh, it was a doll for boys in the 1980s called my buddy. And I would just stuff him in there. So he would have like this little head (laughs) and then the stuffed shirt of newspaper. And that was my patient. Okay. Okay. And so like. So you would come would up be with scenarios there. and stuff? hundred percent. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and at the time, this is what was interesting. At the time, I thought I was playing doctor. Okay. Um, okay. But in reality, I was really playing. What you were nurse. actually doing. I was doing. being a nurse That's because wild. I was tending to my patient. I was administering <laughs> medications, uh, watching for side effects. So, oh. um, And so growing up, um, um, you know, um, I, I, I kind of always had this desire to help people. Yeah. Um, for a little bit, you know, five or six, I was saying I was going to be a priest and, uh, mm. and a, um, a doctor. So I was mm. going to be like a doctor priest, mm. you know? Um, and then later on, uh, like through high school and then starting into college, um, uh, I was still very interested in, in, in medicine. Okay. And so I was like, well, maybe I'll be a PA, maybe I'll be a physician. Yeah. I'm not sure. Um, so in college I studied biology and actually my undergrad didn't have a nursing program Hmm. and nursing still for me was kind of like, well, no, that's what girls do, you know? So there's still very much of this like stereotype. Um, and so after college, I didn't know what I was going to do. What are you going to do with a biology major? I'm not doing anything with my biology. (laughs) Okay, see, yeah, (laughs) not much. And so I kind of took a gap year, and what I did was I joined AmeriCorps. Oh, cool. And so I became an AmeriCorps volunteer, and I got assigned to um, Washington, D.C., and I worked as an activities coordinator. Uh, It was a medical facility for homeless people. And so they were well enough to be out of the hospital, but not well enough to be back into the shelters or into the street. And so this was kind of like a transition point for Mm. them. Um, And that's where I came into contact with a lot of badass nurses. Mm. (laughs) Um, And I was like, they were doing public health. They were, you know, Mm. in this, you know, they, they were in this facility treating patients, but then they were out in the van going around, you know, giving treatment on the streets. And that's where it clicked for me. Mm. I was like, Oh, this is what I'm meant to do. Like, like since I was little with my, you know, stuffed shirt and mm-hmm. pants, you know, patient all the way up into here, this is, I'm meant to be a nurse. And so, um, so that's, you know, through that experience then I started looking at nursing schools to go to. Sure. And, um, um, I had friends moving to Chicago. So I'm from upstate New York. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So upstate New York. Gotcha. So I'm East coast, you know, okay. and I had friends coming out to Chicago and I was like, well, I'll start looking for nursing schools in Chicago. And rush had this one year accelerated program. So if you had a bachelor's in something else mm. and had all the prereqs, then you could 
do this one year nursing program and get your bachelor's. Okay. Okay. And yep. was there any part, it's only one year, but any part of you like another bachelor's or like, no, that, I know, does, that, I know. does that, well, you know, it's so funny because I already have, I actually have two bachelors. So I have a bachelor's in biology and then I have a bachelor's in uh, religious studies. Oh. And so I'm like, maybe a third bachelor's <laughs> is going to get me a master's maybe. Like, I don't know. <laughs> Be- because there are some, some master's programs where you come in with a non nursing bachelor's yeah. Right? So okay. yeah. So at the time, so this is back in 2004. At the Ooh, time, okay. that wasn't a thing. Yeah. It is now. Okay. So now, Rush actually just offers um, direct entry into a master's program. They don't even offer a bachelor's anymore in nursing. So it's a if you have a ba- a bachelor's in non nursing, you go into their program and get a, a master's in nursing. And I, I guess while we're on this master's topic, it's like, yeah. is that who is the ideal candidate for an MSN for a master's in nursing? Yeah, because you can you can just go to, to yeah. a nurse practitioner or CRNA, oh. like yeah. So so nursing is really there's a lot of points of entry yeah. into the nursing profession, and so now back in the day when my mom became a nurse, it was the majority were diploma um, degrees, right. and so it wasn't necessarily college educated. Um, they took classes, but a lot of their uh, nursing training and education was. They, they were on the floors like on the job yeah on, in the wards yeah. um, and um, and then they moved into associates degrees and so mm. in the 70s and 80s associate degree and bachelor degrees were really popular okay um, and it hasn't been until recently that master degrees have now been the point of entry um, mm. into into nursing it just doesn't seem like the next rung after a BSN yeah right? okay. yeah and so now what it the, actually, the fastest growing nursing profession now are nurse practitioners, and okay. so, um, uh, and so they, you know, these are uh, nurses that either have a bachelor's or a master's, okay. and they go into a doctorate program. Mm-hmm. There are there are also masters in nursing for nurse practitioners, and mm. um, and so it's like it's weird. Like you can get a master's in nursing, but some are geared towards being nurse practitioners or CRNAs. Okay. Others are geared towards just general entry okay. masters. And so different training and education, uh, but s- still the same degree. And so that's why nurse practitioners are now moving more into the doctorate realm. Mm. And so I think by like 2030, the plan is to have all nurse practitioner programs at the doctorate level okay. instead of the master level. Yeah, some standard, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, and it's, you know, it's kind of, I think, have parity among our other colleagues. So, mm. you know, pharmacists, they, they get their PharmD now. Yeah. Physical therapists get their PTD. Right. So right, doctor, right. doctor. Well, yeah. there, there's the, there's the big discussion between like physician assistant and, and oh, PE, yeah. right? It's just like a lot of, yeah. a lot of pre-health students are just kind of like trying to navigate, like what is the best option for them? Yeah. 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 And it's, um, you know, it's, you know, people who, as far as maybe like what you're allowed to do, the work-life balance, things, yeah, things like that. Yeah, yeah, and that's where, you know, and I think a, a or, lot or of people... Even the, even the training. Yeah, I think a lot of people go into being a PA or a nurse practitioner um, instead of being like a physician is to avoid the debt. Mm. Um, and then what you're talking about is that work-life balance. And so having more, um, more ability to kind of yeah, have that work-life balance than physicians would typically get. Mm. Um, although physician, my physician colleagues, I mean, this generation, they're, you know, the old school generation was all about work, work, work. Mm. And, 
you know, physicians, you know, in this day and age are like, no, boundaries. we, we need boundaries. <laughs> we need boundaries. Um, and so, which this is what's great is you've got colleagues, PAs and NPs that can come in and, yeah. and help with, with that workload. There's enough work for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> and so, and that's where, you know, this is, that, that's where I think the team works great okay. uh, between PAs and PAs and, and physicians. Gotcha. So, yeah. uh, what was so you you went into your uh, master's or not master uh, the one year accelerated B, yeah. B, uh, yeah. BSN program yeah yeah and my plan was uh, was to go into public health nursing mm. and be a badass like mm. I saw those nurses you know in Washington D.C. Um, but then I fell in love with hospital medicine mm. and so my first rotation um, was on a general medicine unit. Mm. And I was like, Oh, this is cool. This is, you know, it, you're meeting people at a very unique point in their, in their life. Mm. Um, it can be a very scary place. Um, and to, to be the one, uh, to give support and comfort mm. and help people navigate through that point in their life, uh, is really special, uh, and really privileged. Um, and, um, there's a lot of opportunity to to really have um, an, impact. an impact. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think life. I yeah. think the amount of time you do spend as a nurse with patients is what medical students are looking for, like mm-hmm. romantically looking mm-hmm. for. Right, and, right. Uh, you get bogged down with metrics you got to you got to oh. reach, and it's just you, you don't get that. No, as no. a physician. <laughs> no, no. And in fact, when you know, eventually I went on to more schooling and and got my nurse practitioner. Um, my first year, I missed bedside so much mm. that I actually um, took a position as like a per diem, so as sure. needed basis, uh, to work at the bedside because I just missed that one-on-one interaction. You, yeah, you you climb the ladder so high, you, you get so removed from what you first initially yeah. fell in love with. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. passion. Yeah, yeah. and so. Um, um, so yeah, so I was in, you know, hospital medicine, um, from 2005 all the way up into 2012. And so mm-hmm. I worked on the general medicine unit and then I was an ICU nurse, um, for seven years. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then in 2013, I started my role in, as a nurse practitioner in hospital medicine. And throughout this journey, were there any, um, forks in the road where like, I kind of like ICU more like, like did, did you consider anything at the, like, like flight medicine or like you know, oh, anything yeah. like that? <laughs> yeah. And that's, what's great about nursing. Like you can go into anything. You mm. could go into teaching. You could go into, um, public health. You mm. could go into, um, I mean, look at Lauren Underwood. Uh, she's oh, a nurse, okay. she's a congressperson, oh, okay, you know, okay. and so, you know, and she brings that unique perspective of not only being a nurse, but yeah. she also, um, has a chronic illness. And so, you know, and then she's taking that into the halls of Congress, which is so cool. Wow. Um, and so nursing just can, nursing permeates society, you know, we're, yeah. we're found in all corners. Um, and so that's, what's really cool. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I had thought about flight nursing. So I'm like, that's pretty cool, you know? And I thought about like, do I go into the shelters again, mm. start working, you know? Um, and especially in Chicago, there's a lot of opportunity, mm-hmm. uh, to do community health stuff. And so, um, I found my way into ICU nursing and okay. that's what I, that's really what, what kind of I, ICU? so I was medical ICU, oh, medical ICU. Okay. Um, but my last year I did rotation. So I went through surgical nice. neurosurgery, cardiac. Wow. Uh, so I kind of got a taste of, of everything. Yeah. Um, but medicine has been my favorite. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. yeah. What, and why? Cause it, it does it touch a little bit about everything. Well, like, you know, with medicine. So, you know, with surgical, 
with surgical nursing, um, it's pretty much like A plus B equals C. So you got an inflamed gallbladder, it's infected, we're gonna take it out, you get better, we send you home. Okay. <laughs> with medicine, it's a lot more with chronic illness. And chronic illness gets influenced by social determinants of health, mm. family support, um, finances, um, a lot of things. And so it's like... It's a puzzle and it's a welcome challenge? Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah. And so it's kind of like, okay, you've got this chronic illness. How am I going to help you cope with and live with this um, mm. in a healthy way? And, you know, prescribed treatments, you know, what would be like evidence-based and what's number one recommended may not be functional for that person. So again, what's going to be functional for that person? So, you know, for example, you know, people with heart failure, um, they have to be on a, a, what we call a water pill. So a diuretic to help take off the fluid that the heart has trouble distributing. Mm -hmm. Well, that causes people to pee a lot mm -hmm. and urinate. And so a lot of times that's a medication that people will like avoid and not take, and that causes an exacerbation, and so then they're back in the hospital. And so it's really saying like, okay, you, twice a day would would be the recommended dose, but you can only do it once a day, so let's just do it once a day. And then what times would work best? Like, in the morning, you're gonna be out and about, so maybe take it in the evening, because you'll yeah. be home. And so it's it's fun to really you're work. You're kind of wearing like the social worker hat too, Oh yeah, huh? 100%, yeah. 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 And, and, you know, in hospital medicine, it's very multidisciplinary. And so you're pulling in caseworkers, nurse managers, mm. social workers, um, uh, trying to pull in all these res resources, you know, to help pe people. Is, is there any part of you that is frustrated when you don't have control? Like you give them the keys to mm -hmm. like maybe change a lifestyle or a behavior and yeah. it's really up to them, right? Yeah. You know, I think when I was younger in my nursing career, it'd be super frustrating sure. because it, it would like, it makes sense to me. Like, why wouldn't you do this? You know? Um, but people are complex yeah. and I don't understand a hundred percent of their complexity or the, the path that they've had to walk along. Sure. And so, um, I've gotten to a point now of saying like, Hey, there's a lot of tools in this toolbox and you've got to see what works best for you. And it's not up to me to decide that for you, but at least to give you the knowledge yeah. and the power to do it. Um, and then it's it's up to you. It's their life in the end, you know. And it may not be the path I would choose, but that's not my path. Mm. Uh, it's theirs. And so, and for me to be able to support them as much as I can along that journey, along that road, um, it's it's all about risk reduction, you know. And I mean, is there any part of you that wishes you could? have follow-ups with them, right? Yeah. Because oh, you, don't, you don't really, no, you, don't, you don't have no, follow-ups. No, <laughs> not at all, not at all. No, yeah, there's a lot, yeah, a lot of times, yeah, because, yeah, pretty much, you know, the patients that I get... Because um, we used to try, I think there was an initiative a while ago, I think they did it in Wisconsin or Minnesota for, like, paramedics, like, community paramedicine, mm. right? Or, or mm -hmm. just, like, maybe creating a segment of the hospital to check up on frequent flyers or people that, you know, yeah. are recently... Uh, discharged and just making sure that they, they are doing everything they need right. to be doing. Right. Yeah. So we, um, at least the institution that I work at, um, we do have, um, so these are, like you said, um, high risk, uh, readmissions. Mm. And so our frequent flyers, as yeah. we call them. Um, and we have a social work team that actually calls them 
usually within the first couple days of discharge okay. to call in, check in, everything going well, what questions do you have? Was you know, were there any confusion? Sure. Um um, and so, yeah, so we do have a certain patient population that we do flag. Cool. You know, back in the day, um, you know, the, it was the primary care physician that would come into the hospitals and manage patients. Wow. Um, and so there was that continuity. So they knew this patient, you know, and they knew. Oh. Um, but this day and age. You're not seeing that? No, no. I mean, this is my job How many now. people have <laughs> had a primary care, you know? Well, I would like more people to have primary yeah. care. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, some, and it, and unfortunately, a lot has to do with location, okay. um, and so some people just don't have access uh, to a um, primary care center in their community. Um, insurance, people don't have insurance yeah. that would cover them to to get um, primary care. Even you know, people, even if they do have uh, insurance, sometimes the copays to see your primary care can be high that they sure. can't afford. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's there's a lot of obstacles for, for people to actually get plugged into a, into a primary even, care. Uh, so even with like Medicare, Medicaid, or county care? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, so that's, um, um, yes. So um, Which is our what, like local, like subsidized yeah. version of, of insurance? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, certainly with the Affordable Care Act, yeah. um, that or Obamacare, which is commonly known as, that really gave people access to healthcare and the okay. ability to, to get insurance affordably um, um, into, um, into to seeing a medical provider. And gotcha. so that has certainly helped out a lot. Um, the problem that you get into with, with some of these either private insurances or public insurances is they can be limited as far as if you are a person that has chronic illness and need specialty care. Um, well, you'll get denied? Sometimes it won't cover it. Oh, yeah. Wow. And so some insurance companies, you know, so for example, if you come into the hospital and, um, you know, you need to go to like a, a, a an acute rehab center or a subacute rehab center uh, because you're just physically deconditioned from your illness and you're just not safe enough to return home, we've had insurance companies deny that. And we send them, again, the best option for them would be going to an acute rehab or a Uh-oh. subacute rehab center, but we have to send them home. Oh. <laughs> and they may, and, and actually the biggest issue we, we have this with are um, our immigrant population, sure. our undocumented yeah. uh, patients uh, that just, we can get them into some county care or um, some bare bones insurance, um, but they just don't get a lot of services that they need from it. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. wow, wow, wow. Um, and so what is your current day to day as a nurse pr- practitioner? Are sure. you more on the admin side? Cause you're, you're a professor as well. You're assistant professor as yeah, well. Yeah. Yeah. So I work in the, in the college of nursing, okay. um, 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 where I teach a few classes. What's um, it like to come full circle? Uh, that's really cool. Well, yeah, and this is the this is I started out there twenty years ago yeah. as a student, and it's so it's really weird. Yeah, and there, you know, there are some professors that are still there that it's hard for me to say their first name, right? So like, you know, I knew them as like Dr. Hicks, and it's like, no, call me Frank. I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> Brain kicks, you know, it's just like, you know, it's just kind of, but it's, it's cool because, um, uh, it's, it's like a family, sure. you know, I've like, I've known you like, you know, um, for this long. And so, um, and we know each other's, um, strengths and weaknesses sure. and, you know, we can, you know, 
um, it is, it is like a, a little family, a little community. So it's fun. Uh, yeah. So I teach in, um, in the acute care nurse okay. practitioner program. Um, and then, um, but all my clinical work is, is hospital medicine. Okay. And so, um, you know, I manage a group of patients, um, uh, on a one unit. So I'm dedicated to one general medicine unit. Uh, we've got 32 beds. Um, I see up to nine patients on, on that. Um, and th- it can range from number. I mean, I feel like I'm a jack of all trades, a master of none. <laughs> and so, because I, I have to know a lot of, about everything. Um, and so, you know, I'll see heart failure patients. Kind of like ER? Yeah. Kind of like ER. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, um, yeah. ER sees a lot though. So (laughs) at least, you know, at least I get specific towards like, yes, this is a medicine patient. uh, Okay. Yeah. So where ER, you get psych, you get trauma, trauma, you get everything. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, my hat's off to, to ER people. They're, they got a tough job. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but you know, even, you know, even, you know, I say that, but like with general medicine, you know, we'll have patients that their main issue is psych related, mm-hmm. but they may have some medical issue that they can't be in the psych unit. And so they're mm-hmm. over. So we saw this a lot with COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, a patient comes in primarily for psychiatric issues, needs an inpatient psychiatric, um, stay, but they came up positive for COVID. Sure. They may be asymptomatic, but they don't want to put them in like a lockdown unit. Sure. And sure. so they put them on general medicine to, to, to get the treatment that they need. Oh, and so, wow. yeah, so I, you know, yeah, I guess I, I deal with a wide range. Yeah. Um, and right now, is that a good balance for you doing, doing the teaching as well as the yeah, aspect? Yeah. I, I, yeah. And like I was saying, you like nursing, you can do anything. Yeah. And so I'm really starting to, to, to branch out. Um, and, and was it becoming the nurse practitioner that unlocked this door to do kind of this, both of this? For sure. Okay. For sure. Yeah. So like, you know, to teach in the, in the college, I, they, I mean, we have, we have people that have, um, you know, bachelors and masters, um, uh, that are in the college teaching as like clinical instructors. Yeah. And, um, but you need that terminal degree of the doctorate to be able to be like a professor. Okay. Um, and that's something I wanted to, to do is to okay. have more role in curriculum development. Okay. And, um, so that's fun. You yeah. know, a challenge is a different part of my brain. Sure. Um, uh, like how would, how yeah. would you have liked to been taught if you were to do it all over again? Yeah. Right? Yep. Okay. Yep. And you know, what's changed. And yeah. so what needs to change in our curriculum, you know, right, the, the, right. the people that we're seeing and treating, it's a, it's it, based on society and politics, things are always changing. And so what do we need to teach nurses in order to equip them to, to be respond, to be able to adequately respond to the needs of the community right now. Yeah. Um, and so that changes. And so, you know, for example, um, what I didn't get a lot of, but now that we're really pushing is, you know, how do I affect policy? Because policy drives change. And and if we want to change what's going on in our profession yeah. or what's happening in the lives of our patients, we need to know how to talk to politicians. We need to mm-hmm. know how to um, um, write op-eds. We need to know how to, you know, um, speak a nurse's voice to the public right, and get right. people to understand. And so, um, so yeah, so it's, it's fun. <laughs> right. Is there, um, currently a, a shortage in our area or nationwide of nurses? How are you seeing with like, what are you seeing with like application numbers? Yeah. 
Um, so, I mean, we're always talking about a shortage of nursing. Yeah. Um, and that's always, you know, it's been since my mother was a nurse, oh. you know, back in the 60s, okay. you know, they're okay. always talking about it. Um, what we're seeing um, now as far as numbers, yes, we're, we're going to be entering um, a nursing shortage. And a lot of that, <clears throat> I think it's in all sectors of, of life, though. Health, because oh, life or healthcare? Or? Life. Oh, life. Um, because we've got the baby boomers that are retiring. And so, you know, there's a there's a big gap that sure. we're going to start yeah. seeing um, in in jobs that were formerly taken up by, you know, uh, the baby boomer population right. as they retire. Um, and so nursing is not immune to that. And so, you know, we've got swaths of, of nurses that, with their experience just and their knowledge just gone, <laughs> retiring. <laughs> and so, and we've got this, you know, newer cohort of younger nurses that are, you know, taking up the, the helm. Yeah. Um, I, and, hear, I hear stories of like new nurses training, like, oh, newer nurses. 100%. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, what's interesting that, that we've seen nationwide is certainly the pandemic has okay. really burned out nurses. What, in what would be, in, you know, and we can't speak for every hospital system, mm-hmm. but like the average number of patients per nurse. Oh yeah. Um, so on average, what you typically want to have is like, if you're like in an ICU setting, yeah. uh, one nurse for one to two patients. Okay. Um, uh, on the general medicine unit, uh, it's usually four nurses to one patient, or four one, patients. one nurse for four patients, okay. right? Okay. Um, and then, um, and then things kind of change as you go to like, um, like acute rehab. Um, or skilled nursing facilities higher, higher. Okay, yeah, okay. yeah, because they're not as acutely sick. So the less gotcha. acutely sick they become, the the more patients a nurse can have. And and how do some hospital systems like stretch that boundary? Yeah, so um, it's interesting. There's so you'll have some places like California that actually legislate this, mm. and so they'll say like. Um, it's a state law that it's mandatory that you can only have one nurse for four patients if you're on a general medicine unit. Um, places like Illinois, um, we, which don't have those laws, uh, rely on various things like acuity. And so there are different tools that hospitals will use to kind of judge how sick a person is. Okay. And based on those numbers, that will tell you how many... Uh, nurses that you need and so some nurses can have six patients um but it's but they're at a lower acuity so they're able to manage that i get nervous when you legislate patient nurse ratios um only because what'll start happening is to maintain a high nursing workforce like that hospital systems had to start letting other things go so ancillary staff or supportive staff. And so, okay, we're going to have all these nurses to keep these ratios. We're not going to have it's a unit clerk. Their, it's not in their budget right. anymore. So, oh. so we'll, we're going to have to get rid of the unit clerk. Oh. Uh, we're going to have to maybe get rid of uh, an evening housekeeper um, to be able to ha- afford to have these nurses to meet these mandated ratios. Yeah. So then who picks up that? it's going to be the nurse. <laughs> and so they get their ratios, but then they may have to take on other responsibilities hmm. um, uh, to offset the cost. So uh, before we started recording, we were talking about agency life mm-hmm. and like, where does the funding for agency nurses come from? 
Yeah, so that's um, it, it, it seems like once when nursing unions go on strike, right, right, and they bring in mm-hmm. these agency nurses yep. for double or three times yep. the rate. It's yep. like you can afford this, but you can't. Right. <laughs> so right. Yeah. How yeah. does that work? <laughs> so agency nursing. So there's a lot of like companies out there that have agency nurse or or agency nursing companies, and they'll send nurses out all over the place. Okay. Um, and um, and usually it's to hospital systems or hospitals that are short nurses. And yeah. so uh, for hospitals, it's a short-term fix um, to respond to a, an immediate crisis. Okay. So whether that's you know a strike that's happening yeah. um, or um, uh, if there's like a natural disaster or something sure. like that that happens, um, or COVID. <laughs> Um, and so they'll bring in agency nurses. And so it's long-term financially doesn't make sense and not, um, yeah, on on average, these are like 18 week contracts. Yeah. So, yeah. So yes. So they can be, yeah, they usually can be anywhere from like six weeks to, yeah, to three months. Um, uh, where these, um, these hospital systems will, will contract with, ideally hospitals don't want to be agency free <laughs> right because it's right. just too expensive um but again it's that short term yeah fix to whatever is going on so do, do you think i mean and what is the current pulse on agency like nurses that are in agency yeah so we're we're is, using is them a lot up? is it drying up or there's, I, it's gonna start drying it's up. gonna start yeah, drying up yeah 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 as covid has like now become like Kind of like I mean, people aren't dying anymore from COVID, okay. for the most part, yeah. um, and um, not like they they were. And so um, the agency was being used for hospitals that had become overrun. All mm. hospitals were overrun with right. patients, and so these were healthy people that normally wouldn't seek hospital care. That 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 they were now seeking hospital care because yeah. of COVID, and so the the nursing infrastructure that they had at the time could not support the influx of patients sure. that they were getting. And so that's where they were really needed. Um, I would say now out of the pandemic, hospitals are still using agency because nurses are leaving the bedside because they got so burnt out with, with COVID and in and, 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 and the hospital setting yeah. that they're like, I've got to go into primary care, school, you know, just another just industry, another yeah, industry yeah. Um, uh, completely. And so we've had to use agency nurses to help respond to the influx of nurses that left after the pandemic. Wow. Um, I think that's now we're starting to now replenish okay. uh, the nurses that we lost. Um, and this is nationwide. So then the nurses that we lost um, and to, to, to get more of a, a core staff. Sure, sure, yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, can you speak on like how to cultivate an ideal like workforce or work life, not work life balance, but like Mm a, a culture, um, at work amongst the nurses? Yeah. So, you know, it's, um, when you work in a hospital, it's, and especially for nursing, um, it's very different from the rest of your friends. (laughs) You come into, uh, very unique situations and you deal with life and death. Yeah. Every day, um, you know, my my sister will tell me all the time, like, how can you be so flippant about talking about death? And I'm like, I have to to cope. Like, you know, that's what we do. Yeah, you know, yeah. um, and it's not meant to be disrespectful in any way um, or minimize um, 
the seriousness of a situation, but sure. it's a way to cope. And so, um, so you will see this camaraderie among nurses uh, very early on uh, because they're sharing a very unique experience. Um, not only the experiences that they deal with with patients day to day, but then also the shifts. So a lot of places do like rotating nights. So sure. you'll do nights and day, and so you have and you work weekends, you work holidays. You know, it's it's a very unique role, um, um, profession to have. Um, and so, um, I think we talk a lot about creating a healthy work environment and a lot of that starts out with, um, respecting your coworkers in like everywhere, you know, and having this kind of code of conduct. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, we talk a lot about, um, and it's an old saying, you know, oh, nurses eat their young, mm. um, which can be true uh, for some for some places. Um, but what I have found at, at where I work is that we're all there to support each other. Yeah. Uh, because at the end of the day, um, what matters is the patient. Sure. And so, you know, for example, um, you know, if 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 you come to me with a question and I intimidate you or bully you, you're not going to come to me next time with that question. Um, And who's gonna suffer in the end? It's gonna be the patient. And so that's why it's really important that we work hard on keeping open lines of communication, respecting each other and the roles that we do. Um, And so we learned a lot with that with COVID um, that, you know, one of the best units I worked on was an ortho unit Mm. that got turned into a COVID unit. Mm. And these nurses, you know, they dealt with hip replacements and joint replacements and these were surgical. And all of a sudden they're dealing with a pandemic, a medical pandemic, and they killed it. Well, that's not a great way to say it. (laughs) (laughs) They knocked it out of the park. Oh God. So, um, um, and, and, and what was great was not only did nurses come together, but environmental services came together. So, you know, the environmental service, so this is housekeeping staff. They don't get enough credit. They were the unsung yeah. heroes, yeah. you know, because they were they were going into these rooms and cleaning these rooms and coming up with protocols of like, because we didn't know what this virus right. was doing. You know, we didn't know how long it was living on services. And, right, right. and they were going in there, exposing themselves every day um, and then making sure that, the environment was clean enough to keep me safe, to keep patients safe, to keep everybody safe. And so the respect that we found among all people that were on the unit was just incredible because we all had a role to play. Yeah. So are are there some um, protocols to like minimize burnout as well? Yeah. So we've talked a lot about that within the nursing profession Mm. is how to, because you're dealing with heavy stuff um, and, um, you know, emotionally taxing stuff, not to mention it's physical labor, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and so, um, there's a lot of things that we have in place. So like one of them, um, is mentoring. And so, um, having a mentor is really important so that you can have a person to go to, to say like, Hey, this is what I'm dealing with. How did you deal with this? Yeah. Or this is what I'm feeling. You know, how do I manage this? Um, we have a what we call a nurse residency program, and so these are brand new nurses oh. in their first year. And so, part of I think it's like four hours a week that they spend meeting with other new nurses, 
um, being mentored by a senior nurse and they talk about a lot of different things. Um, and some of the, the sessions that they'll go to is like, you know, how to encounter, how do you just deescalate an angry patient or an angry family member? Um, cause you know, one of the things that, that you'll encounter as a, as a, as a nurse or a nurse practitioner or healthcare provider in general is, you know, family members will come in or even patients and they're confused mm-hmm. and they're frustrated. Um, well, I got lost they, on the way there, right? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and, you know, they'll feel dumb and yeah. don't know what's going on. But instead of owning those feelings, they'll project them onto you. Sure. So, so you know, but don't, get, don't take it personally, right? right exactly. Okay. That's what's hard yeah, is, yeah. you know, and but it took me many years to start yeah. realizing like, you know, oh, you're calling me dumb, you're calling me stupid, mm. I don't know what's happening. It's because those are your feelings. You're confused, you're scared. Mm. And so re- recognizing what's happening, just poor coping, sure. and then being able then to address that. Um, and that, I mean, that takes a lot of years of practice. Yeah. Emotional checking yourself. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, this isn't a personal All I'm trying to do me. is save your family member. <laughs> I know, I know, right? <laughs> do you realize what I've been doing? You know? Um, and so it's it's learning skills like that okay. um, to, 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 to be that's able cool. to. And that's a sign. You don't just like find a mentor. Like, right, yeah. right. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, sometimes, you know, and it depends on, uh, there's a lot of different type of mentoring programs out there. So it depends on what you're looking for. Yeah. So whether it's a professional mentor to see like, where do I take my profession next uh, versus, yeah. hey, I'm brand new. I need support in navigating this like new profession. Um and then we also have like, um, you know, we promote like a lot of like self-reflection. Mm-hmm. And so um, for a while we had, this was before COVID, we had uh, like code lavender. Mm-hmm. And so if we noticed, so we talked about like, we have code blues when a patient is in trouble. Um, you know, we'll have a team that responds and mm-hmm. deals with that. If there is a coworker that has had like a very emotional day or we can call a cold lavender. And so we'll have somebody from either like volunteer services um, come up and bring like snacks, drininks, just something to and, oh. and recognize like, hey, you need 20 minutes. I'm taking your pager, I'm taking your patient assignment. Relax, chill. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's when re- recognizing a co-worker in distress yeah. and that they need something. Um, what was great is we had wellness rounds um, during COVID and it was this um, psychiatric and psychology department um, that came around and just said, hey, do you guys need to do debrief? They bring snacks and stuff like that, which was great. Wow. Um, but then it was also like, hey, I'm here to offer my services. Like, was there a particularly hard day that you had today, let's talk about it. Um, and so that type of self-care is like super, super important. And it, it's, it's, I guess it's like learning to be receptive and open to mm-hmm. that as well. It can oh, be yeah. hard to just open up like oh, on yeah. the spot, right? Oh like, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know, it's again, like COVID just made, brought up really unique opportunities. And so people that normally be like, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. People were like, yeah, I got to talk about this, you know? And, uh, cool. um, or like, we were like, we got to make a TikTok. Yeah. <laughs> we were, I was making TikToks, like, I don't TikTok, you know? But it was like, like, I need to get out of here. Let's go up onto the rooftop. Let's like make a silly TikTok with a dance. And oh. it was so therapeutic. Yeah. You know? And oh, yeah, they do yoga on the rooftop. At, yeah. At yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Yeah. We had stuff like that, yeah. you know? And so, um, yeah. And it was, it was, 
yeah, it was, it was cool. You know, you know, so my partner, he's a professional dancer, uh, now retired. Um, but he had seen on TikTok, and he's like, yeah, a lot of healthcare professionals are doing like these TikToks yeah. now. And he goes, you know, that's the power of dance. It's just, it helps people cope and deal with whatever stressors it's that release, they're, yeah. yeah, it's release. Mm-hmm. And a lot of healthcare providers went to dance on TikTok to, yeah. to do that. And so, you know, we were discovering different creative outlets that we didn't know that we had, but we were almost forced to discover because we needed to cope with just kind of the scary situation. So, yeah. yeah. And on the flip side, you had some very cringy healthcare providers create cringy like TikToks of like, like, planning to cry because they lost a patient oh. or something. It's like, Ooh, no, mm. I know. Yeah. And that was a, yeah. Some people wanted to capitalize. Yeah. On, right. Like, right. you know, when it's like, mm, this is not, not genuine, yeah, not, not genuine it. at all. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's funny. We had, well, yeah, we had this, you know, some people were like, you know, when they got admitted for COVID, they were like calling the radio stations like, yeah, I'm a patient with COVID. Like, and they were getting interviewed. <laughs> I'm like, okay, come on, yeah. you know. But then again, it, it, we didn't know what was going on. So I think if any voices that we heard, I think people were eager to hear. Sure, Because, sure. again, it was such a mystery and so, so scary. So, uh, Remember the nurse um, that paralyzed her patient, I think, at Vanderbilt? Yes. Yeah. So, so the, this yeah. quick story was like the... I think the patient was about to be discharged, but they needed a head CT scan from a stroke to verify there's no no more bleeding. Mm-hmm. But they're anxious of uh, small spaces, mm-hmm. um, claustrophobic. So they were about to give Versed, mm-hmm. um, but the Pixis, like they took out a different medication, a paralytic, mm-hmm. Vecuronium. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, if you've ever given Versed and or Vecuronium, you mm-hmm. know that you you got to reconstitute vecuronium. Mm-hmm. So in my head, it's like in my perspective, it's an easy mistake to not make, I mm-hmm. guess. Or mm-hmm. it's a, yeah, right. So yeah. Um, what were some takeaways uh, if there were any discussions after that incident to prevent something like that from ever happening? Because in our class, yeah. in our EMT class, we teach the six rights, right? And yeah. even if you did that by yourself or with someone else, right. like, come on. I mean, And yeah. I know like there's maybe short-staffed and, and sure. there's a lot of pressure on you to perform. Yeah. So yeah. what were some other takeaways Yeah, I think the, you know, um, I think an important concept that I really um, go by is something called, um, um, oh, why am I forgetting on the name now? Um, Oh, oh, it has to do with justice. Um, I can't remember the term exactly right now, but it's basically... Um, taking an error like that, yeah. so an error that happens, uh, adjust culture is what it oh. is. So adjust culture. Yeah. And so it's taking um, uh, an error that has happened and analyzing it and saying, what were the system failures in place? Um, and it could be anywhere from there's a breakdown in one of the, the systems um, that led to this error, or was it just a blatant override of known policy sure and so i don't know enough about that case um i I heard there were some overrides of the pixis correct yeah Yeah. and so um so again yeah there are a number of things that we have in place to prevent errors from like that happening one it starts with um 
the order entry. And so a provider puts in an order. It has to get verified by the pharmacist. Pharmacist verifies it, and then it gets put into the Pixis. So the Pixis is this medication machine that a nurse has to go into, pick a patient, and then pick the medication that's on that profile. Mm. There are, um, in cases of emergency, that um, we don't want to delay any life-saving medication that a nurse can go into the Pixis and override and pick um, a medication. Sometimes it's restricted as far as what those medications can be. Um, And so, um, so yeah, so a nurse can override that if the Pixis machine isn't stocked correctly. And so there's drawers that pop out, you know, so say I pick Versed, drawer pops out and I grab the bottle. I'm assuming that it's Versed. But it could have been stocked incorrectly, okay. Um, and so, um, so that could have been a breakdown. When you go into the patient's room, you have to scan the medication. So there's a little barcodes on all medications that we give, and it populates into their medical record. Mm-hmm. And so, if I scan a wrong medication that's not in their uh, medical record, I can't give it, or I can't chart that I gave it. Um, again, it doesn't prevent me from giving the yeah, medication. Yeah, because usually you chart afterwards anyway. <laughs> you can, yeah. Um, or, yeah, or, um, right. Or and like so, a red flag will come up and you're like, okay. Yeah, and so, right, so you, you have to scan the patient's um, wristband yeah. and then you scan the medication. And again, that's another, like, double check. Yeah. And so, um, so you know, if the nurse had over overrode, you know, why she would have pet you know, not Versad, or maybe she thought she was picking Versad. Yeah. There's a lot of like um, safety steps that probably were skipped. Um, yes, and especially sometimes there's like a two person sign off, and so you have another nurse verify, yeah. like, I'm giving this. Is this what you're seeing? This is what we're seeing. Right. So, yeah, there are probably a number of, like you said, the six uh, rights before giving uh, medication. Um, you know, right patient, right med, yeah. right route, yeah. um, right, dose, right time, yeah. right dose. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the number number of things that um, went into it. You you with with um, with a, a, a just culture too. What you would look more at is not only you know what were the safety overrides that were ignored, but what was that nurse's assignment like? Was it too much? Um, how many hours did she work? Um, is she did was she working twelve hours for a week? Was she working twelve hours for five days? Fatigue can play a lot into that. Was she on a double? Um, and so it's looking at bigger systems yeah. issues. Um, I know a lot of nurses talked about that um, on my unit because she got prosecuted and charged and convicted. Um, and so nurses were like, you know could I get convicted for a mistake like that? I'm like, well, if you follow the right <laughs> protocols, you shouldn't. That should prevent it. And this is a very, very rare what, case. And what, what was uh, the divide? Because to some, it's very clear, how could you make a mistake like mm-hmm. this? Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I did hear a lot of perspectives of like worried and like could could something like that happen? Right, right. Right. Yeah. And I think part of it is, is because systems do fail. It's where it's, you know, it's, these are systems built by humans and humans error. And so people do worry, like, you know, what if somewhere in that chain, there is a breakdown, but then it ends up on me at the end, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And so the last thing nurses want to do are hurt patients or, you know, and that's, that's the, you know, we're always going in with good intent. 
and, and, and then there's all the, always that sentiment of like, you're going to be the first to be the scapegoat. Right. Sometimes. And oh, just 100%. Like, yeah. What, what, what am I doing this for? If right. I'm just going to be like, <laughs> I know, cut, like, <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah. Well, and you know, nurses are the last line of defense and, um, yeah, it's, it's tough. It's tough. That's why you got to be badass to be a nurse. <laughs> I've learned. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so any new, any good advice for new nurses? Um, I mean, I think one, um, you don't always have to go into hospital medicine. Mm. So nurses think like, I have to cut my teeth in the hospital. You don't. Mm. Um, if public health is where your heart is, go there. If um, academics is where your heart is, go there. Um, it's always... Um, it's not a requirement to have like experience mm-mm. to prior to these things? Okay. No, it's always, you know, I always say where, wherever you feel called to or whatever inspires you to become a nurse, that's where you want to go. Mm. Um, the second thing is, I, th- you know, get a mentor. Mm. Um, and that can be an old professor. Uh, that could even be um, a, a preceptor, nurse, a preceptor or, yeah, that yeah. you had. Okay. Um, just someone that you can stay in contact with. It doesn't necessarily have to be from your institution. Just someone that you can say like, hey, I got to run this by you. I had a hard day. Um, so always having that go-to to, to get a different perspective because sure. uh, that's going to prevent you burning out. Third, always learn. You're always going to be learning. You're not going to know everything. Mm-hmm. Things that were in one day are out the next and then back in. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, medicine is always changing. Right. And so you want to always be learning um, and always keeping that up. Joining a professional organization, incredibly mm-hmm. important. Like, like which one? Um, so usually whatever profession or whatever specialty you're in. Oh. So if you're an oncology nurse, joining the, um, the Association of Oncology Nursing. Oh. If you're in critical care, um, the American Association of Critical Care Nurses. Okay. Um, then I always make a plug, the American Nurses Association. Um, they're the national organization. They've got a, a policy and a political arm uh, to join, and it's like by state as well. Um, and so getting involved... Um, with the ANA because they're they're the ones that you can really uh, make a change sure. uh, as far as policies whether again it's about patient care or about the nursing profession um, and so that's really important. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, to to bring it back to uh, the opioid opioid overdose. Yeah. Um, wh- what? How long has the initiative to put these vending machines? Uh, up like how how long yeah. has that project been going and, yeah. and what's the current like air on it you sure know? yeah so um, the opioid ep- um, epidemic um, you know really started off in the nineties um, and this is when and you I'm sure you've heard of this where pain is the fifth vital sign you know yeah. and yeah. you know and the Joint Commission. Um, or, you know, the um, Prescani score. So I don't know, Prescani is a survey that p- goes out to patients. Um, and based on those scores, it can affect reimbursement for hospitals. Oh. It can affect quality standings uh, that hospitals have. And one of the questions that they ask is, was your pain adequately controlled? Oh. And um, so this this concept of, of pain control and pain is the fifth vital sign really spurred um, I feel the opioid um, epidemic because oh, it wow. really forced or incentivized providers to start prescribing and treating pain, yeah. which is important. Um, but 
unfortunately what happened as as these opioids were becoming more and more popular, you had companies that produced opioids, so like fentanyl, morphine, opana, hydrocodone. Um, you know, these are synthetic versions of, of, of opioids. Um, they started doing these campaigns saying that they're completely safe, non-addictive. And so providers were like, well, it's non-addictive, it's treating pain, I'm getting good scores, like, there's no problem. Well, it became a problem quickly. And so, um, uh, so you know, throughout the early 2000s, this is really ramped up. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, particularly in Chicago, um, uh, the opioid like all communities, is a problem. Um, and so there's been a number of years um, that different organizations have been um, focusing on um, this epidemic. Um, Governor Pritzker had released an executive order um, looking at really doing targeted efforts to um, prevent addiction in the beginning, um, then treatment options, and then um, um, addressing overdoses. Mm-hmm. And so this has been something that's been um, on, you know, the, the governor has been really focused on, and particularly in communities, um, that uh, minority communities. And so what we've seen is the opioid epidemic has dispropor- disproportionately affected um, the black and brown communities. Um, and there's lots of reasons for that. Um, you know, one of the reasons is, you know, um, actually JAMA, just the General of American Medical Association, just released an article uh, study showing that um, uh, black and brown people are less likely to be offered treatment for opioid addiction than white people. Um, and so really it's the medical community that has failed to respond to this epidemic mm-hmm. um, among minority communities. It has to do with access to treatment, um, um, and um, and actually having it addressed. Mm. Um, so um, we have seen, um, and we don't have the numbers right now um, as far as how many overdoses happen on the CTA, particularly, okay. as compared to just like out in the general community. Um, but it has been an issue. Um, the highest rates of of opioid overdoses um, uh, are actually on the west side. Okay. And so that's West Garfield, Austin, Humboldt Park, yeah. the top three communities. I, that, I would hear that the medics would just keep Narcan in their pocket, oh yeah. yep. in the visor, yep. just ready to oh yeah. go. Yep, yeah. yep. And, um, and, you know, there are different, like the Knight Ministry, uh, Loyola has um, um, a, a team, and they'll go out and they'll park by... Um, um, uh, CTA stations and then the CTA attendant will come out and say like, you know, Hey, we think somebody's overdosed. So they'll go and see if they need to administer Narcan. Um, and that's great, but I don't think it's all that, um, effective. Um, effective how? What do you mean? Because I, where Narcan needs to be is where the people are. Mm. And so, and they're on the train, Mm. (laughs) they're on the bus. And so my hope and my wish is for every CTA bus, every you know CTA station, and every CTA train to actually carry Narcan okay. on them to be able to get that life-saving medication to the person that needs it in real time. 
Um, Remember those like condom vending machines in the bathrooms? Yeah, what, something so, similar. similar to that. Similar to that, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, for sure. You know, having that access, I think, is is really important. Okay. Um, it's great right now. They're working on getting um, a vending machine at the ninety fifth station on the red line, which is great. Um, but it's one station. It's not where we have the highest overdoses, which is on the west side. Um, So who who decided to to put it there? Well, so it's a task force, and they've been working with um, um, the the, uh, Chicago Chicago Department of Health, uh, CDPH, yeah, Chicago Department of Public Health, um, has been driving this initiative uh, and working with the CTA. Okay. Um, and so this is how it's getting installed. Are, are CTA workers unionized? I believe that they are. I'm not 100% and like it's probably sure. like not in their contract to... Well, that, that's... Right? So this is the rub. And I, and you know, and I, I understand and I get that the workers, one, they don't want more responsibility. They have so much responsibility to begin with to say, to administer a, a life-saving medication is not something, you know, that can be very intimidating, sure. you know? Um, and the fear of one, if I administer it to somebody who's not overdosing, sure. what are the consequences to me? If I don't administer it to somebody and I have it in my possession, what are the consequences? So I think there's a lot of wow. fear yeah. of, of the responsibility. At the end of the day, they're really, isn't or shouldn't be any fear. It's not your responsibility. It's right. And so you have something in your hands that you can use or not use without any repercussion, basically. And so if you have it and you want to use it yourself, great. If you have it and you want somebody else to use it, great. You can say, I have Narcan. If somebody wants to give it, here it is. Gotcha. Um, or if you just don't feel comfortable, um, you don't have to use it. But at least it's there. And in the hands of, um, of 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 anybody to use, and yeah. it won't cost the CTA anything either, okay? Uh, because we've got government. Um, well, now this is what's going to be interesting. So now that it's over the counter, the amount of government funding that goes to like providing free Narcan to different because it was in facil- public libraries too. It's in public libraries, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. for free, for, for free, free. Yeah. for free, yeah. And so like you know. At Rush, we have we have a community health uh, branch, and we get free Narcan all the time um, that we distribute to to people. You know, I'm always asking, like, um, you know, my girl Eugenia, she's like one of the the um, the, the the head people uh, as far as distributing. I'm like, you're my dealer. Like, I've got friends. You know, they're going to a rave this weekend. Can we have some Narcan? Yeah. And she's like, yeah. How many boxes do you need? Yeah. I'll give it to yeah. you. And so I'm just you know handing it out like to you know you know people. Um, there's actually Cigna has an initiative uh, of having Narcan um, newsstands, and so there are like oh. newsstands with Narcan in there, and so I'm trying to get you know Rush to to have um, like a Narcan newsstand on our campus. There's some logistics as far as like we can't be promoting any like particular product or you know oh. things like that but i'm like but we have this life-saving medication that we can have readily available to our patients <laughs> like why would That's we so not want to do people that people that probably get this aren't thinking of the company that made it you know no it's so wild. And, <laughs> well and and we i mean we give it we give it out free all the time from our yeah. institution so it's like you know it's you know 
we're not promoting promoting life. It's not a product. <laughs> and so that's what it's really about. So there's maybe some legal and logistic things to get through, but um, there's a lot of just creative initiatives now being put forward um, in order to, to make this accessible to people. How much would it be from the vending machine? Or is it free? It's free. If it's free, it's free. what's stopping someone from just getting all of it? I don't know. Like, Well, you know, and to be honest, they could, you know, there. So it's not like a medication that's going to get you high. Yeah. It's, it's going to actually do the opposite. <laughs> so I don't know if there's a lot of incentive because, so, and rightly so, people are like brainstorming, like, oh, what if a kid gets it and takes it? Well, it's not nothing's nothing's going to happen. Yeah. You know, uh, so if a seven year old grabs it and you know gives themselves sure. a nasal spray, they're going to be fine. Okay. Um, and so there really isn't. A, any major consequences and you know yeah. it gets emptied out we've got a program that we can restock it for free yeah. um and so i it's it's a win-win but i think there's stigma yeah, yeah, around sure. around it and so like if um, you're seen trying to operate this vending machine like right like oh why do you need yeah. it you know and it's um but you know in in you know a lot of times we even rec- we even recommend narcan um uh, to patients that are um, on chronic opioids. So maybe they have chronic pain and so they're on something like Vicodin. Sure. Um, they should have Narcan in the house in case they do an accidental overdose. Because sometimes when pain gets really uncontrolled, people aren't thinking how much they're taking, that they just want to get their pain under control. Sure. And that can lead to an unintentional overdose. And so having Narcan like someone with a peanut allergy with EpiPen should be available. You know, mm-hmm. we have, um, there is an article that I think it was the New York Post ran uh, talking about, um, well, we shouldn't give Narcan or have Narcan available because that's an infringement on that other person's body and their right to administer Narcan if they're overdosing. We would never say that about giving CPR or right. using a defibrillator on a person who's having a heart attack. Right. Like, you know, it's, and that's, that's essentially what Narcan is. It's, you know, it's CPR for a person that's overdosing. Um, and so, but it's so stigmatized because it's an opioid. And so people say it's their fault, you know, that they're addicted. Why are we helping them? Um, but yeah, I mean, there, there are a lot of people that just hold the perspective of like, yeah. I'm going to mind my own business. Right. Right, right, right. And until it happens to a loved one, it's like you don't really think twice about yeah. someone like unresponsive on the CTA. Yeah. And in fact, the so the CTA Narcan Task Force that I'm a part of, um, one of the women that, that's on there, her son passed away on the blue yeah. line. I think he was a first responder too. Yeah, yeah. And and he um, he was still breathing by the time EMS, right before the EMS got there. But by the time EMS had gotten there, Wow. He had, had passed away. And her perspective was if, you know, we had Narcan, um, you know, could his life be here today? You know? And, you know, people will say, like, you know, does somebody deserve it? Maybe, maybe not. But I would we're not, say. We're not there to judge, you know? No. Yeah. We're there to give a second, a third, a fifth, a hundredth chance at life. And that's what it's about. And whatever happens after, like, if they wake up is. Mm-hmm is on them too, right? Because right? like, I wonder right. how often the night ministry, or I know there's like groups of healthcare providers that just go out to different camps and and they might administer Narcan, but what if this person wakes up, you call EMS, mm-hmm. and they refuse care? Mm-hmm. 
Which has happened <laughs> all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, it goes back to those choices where we're like, that's hard, you know, that's not the choice I would have made or I'd want for you, but at the end of the day, it's it's, it's their choice. Um, and th- But, you know, that's what Narcan is about for me. It's giving them that choice. Mm. So that, you know, this overdose may be your last and you can keep living. And so that's always my hope that this is going to be your last overdose. We're going to save your life and you're going to live the life that you want to live. Cause I can tell you, you know, people that are, that have addiction to opioids, they're not living their best life and they know it and they're not happy. Um, but they have a disease and they have an addiction and sometimes they haven't been given the opportunity to get better. Sometimes they haven't had the access to get better. Um, and so it's giving them that second chance. How how much? Yeah. Just stop me if we're beating beating uh you know keep beating the same same drum. But yeah. uh, how much do you encourage? And I don't think force is the right word, but what you have you you are someone that has the resources and the tools to help someone battle addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, at what point do you s- stop like? extending your hand or like is your hand always extended but like what if they just never reach out yeah um you know it's so i just had an experience um just yesterday or two days ago um with a patient um that um he's a frequent flyer um in for various alcohol opioid related issues and you know and again uh for um withdrawal. Um, and we have a, an awesome addiction medicine team. Um, so we have a team of specialists that actually are certified in addiction medicine comprised of, um, physicians and, um, and social workers that that's all they focus on for that patient. Mm. Um, so anyways, he's, he's in again and, um, and, got him through withdrawal, getting to ready for him to discharge. And he was like, he's like, you know, I know I keep coming in here, but just don't give up on me. And, you know, that just really, and I said, never, never going to give up on you. Um, and, you know, and it's, it's, that's tough, you know, because I can see he's trying so hard and he's trying different things and he's tried different programs and, um, and it's just, it's hard. It's hard based on his life experiences and what he's going through. And, um, it's really hard. So yeah, he's just always extending that hand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what's the, what's the timeline looking like for the vending machine? So, well, interesting Thursday, I have a meeting about it. (laughs) So I'll I'll have more information (laughs) again. There's, there's logistics between, um, you know, getting the CTA ready and then getting the vendor ready and then, you know, how that's all gonna, gonna work out. But we're hoping by the summer, later the summer, yeah. uh, that it's going to be installed into, into the 95th. Um, I wonder if like these can be like a mobile, like, like if someone can set up like a trike, I have a friend mm-hmm. that like used to sell his cold brew on a trike. Oh, nice. Yeah. And you just set up shop at like, the gate of Lollapalooza uh-huh, or like uh-huh. whatever, no, Taylor Swift was in town or yeah. Beyonce, whoever, like large gatherings. And yeah. uh, you're just offering it like 
That is like an awesome idea. Like I just have a vision of like a food truck, but it's a Narcan truck, you know, and you're set up to like these food vendors and like Narcan, free Narcan. Yeah, it, it, exactly. You go to where, you know, the highest risk, you know, and so, you know, certainly venues like Lollapalooza or Pitchfork or anything yeah. like that, that would be a great, that's a great idea. Can I share that? Please, <laughs> I'm going to share that with that. like the task force. <laughs> I think that's so so cool. Yeah, it might be already being done. I don't know. You know, I'm so, but I I love and that idea. Along with like destigmatizing, like you as a person trying to obtain Narcan, mm. kids, especially college kids, are going mm-hmm. to experiment. Maybe mm-hmm. high schoolers too. And just like your intention may not be to do opioids, but mm-hmm. whatever you end up taking might be laced with fentanyl or yep. something else and yep. it, it might put you in an accidental overdose yep. so it's, it's yeah. just understanding that anything can happen especially when you're experimenting with, right. with drugs right right yeah and, and i mean we've seen this with like you know people who are using like cocaine or methamphetamines which narcan does not work on um but it does get laced with fentanyl yeah and so what they, are these dealers thinking i don't know <laughs> Money, because <laughs> yeah, it's it's cheap, right? Fent- yeah. To make fentanyl. Yep. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Maybe the, maybe, maybe and, the addiction process. Like, I got to get a drug dealer on the podcast. Right. Like, <laughs> maybe. You, no, you really do. <laughs> yeah. I I think that would be. I mean, I think that would be really interesting. And you know, even talking to somebody who's like active in addiction right yeah. now, yeah. it would be really interesting. Again, humanize it because people have this stereotype of of what somebody addicted to opioids is, is like, and it's really it can be uncomfortably familiar mm. um, to hear their stories, to be like, wow, I could see myself as you, yeah. you know? And it's because, but it, again, it's, it all depends on what resources you have available and coping techniques that you have, yeah. um, you know, and that separates me from, you know, somebody being addicted. Yeah. So... What uh, what advice would you give to someone trying to establish something similar, let's say, on a college campus? Oh, yeah. Like, who do they have to talk to? Like, yeah. What, what do they got to establish? So, you know, I think, you know, you know, if you're looking at, like, particularly, like, college campuses, like, starting with, like, Student Life and the Health Center, um, that is, like, somebody definitely that, that you want to um, uh, chat with. Um you know, I guess it depends, like whether it's a private or a public institution that you might yeah. come up with some, some challenges. Yeah. Um, but like, yeah, those type of initiatives and like bringing any statistics that you have—that I mm. mean, data is power. Yeah. And so, if you have numbers to show, like, hey, like this percentage of you know people either on our campus or in our surrounding community has like an addiction, an opioid addiction. Yeah. I mean, there are three million people in the United States, sixteen million worldwide that have an opioid addiction. Oh, so it's big. It's yeah. huge. Um, so bringing numbers like that and saying like, hey, this is the benefit. Like, would we ever say we wouldn't carry, you know, Epi, an EpiPen? No. Like, of course, you know, every college campus and health center has EpiPens because uh, it's life-saving. And so same should be for Narcan. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder, like, it, it's he has this, the person I'm thinking of, like, he, he knows someone that overdosed mm-hmm. um, and died from it. and. The college isn't really, he's showing much effort to hmm. implement, you know, yeah. uh, takeaways that they learned from that incident. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why, and sometimes starting at the top or starting with administration hmm. is usually, and this is what I've learned, you know, being in college and being a professor, um, 
change happens at the grassroots. Mm. And so if you have enough students making, you know, making noise about it, the more attention you're going to get. And so this is where you start utilizing journalists, Mm. you know, getting journalists to, and that's it. You know, my brother's a journalist and, um, and you know, when I had this experience on the, on the blue line, um, I went to him and I'm like, what can I do? Like, and he's like, get somebody to write about this. That's what's going to make the change. And he was absolutely right. He was absolutely right. And so, um, you know, making enough noise and getting enough focus through media, whether it be newspaper or TV, local stations, the local, you know, radio station that, you know, some college campuses have, that's where you start. It's grassroots. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Um, is there anything you'd like to share that we haven't talked about already? No, there's a lot that we right? chatted about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, nursing is the best profession to go into, and uh, and we got to get Narcan on the CTA. <laughs> so, if uh, if you want to be found, where where can people find you? Sure, uh, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, mm-hmm. Eric McIntosh. Mm-hmm. Um, I do also have an Instagram, Eric McIntosh, but I don't ever use it. Okay. So probably okay. LinkedIn is probably the 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 best way to find me. Um, and uh, yeah. Awesome. Eric, it was a pleasure. Thanks for hopping on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Um, Thank you guys for tuning in, and we'll see you in the next one.